Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. This is Julie, and here we have episode 310 of Forgotten Classics, where we are pursuing The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood. However, before we get back to the case, I wanted to mention the reason I didn't come out last Saturday and uh, took a bit of a break was that we were moving servers. Everything still works on the same links, but for a while we were downloading and uploading and redirecting and checking and that kind of thing. So I wasn't able to upload any new episodes. It didn't matter. But we're back. We're on the new server. Everything should be hunky-dory and hopefully seamless from your point of view, except for that glitch of the episode coming out at a different time. I also have a podcast highlight for you. This is one that anybody who pays attention to the podcasting world already knows about. Malcolm Gladwell is doing a podcast called Revisionist History. And I think sometime in the past, I mentioned Malcolm Gladwell to you because of the audiobooks I've listened to. He's a reporter. He writes pieces that make connections between things that we wouldn't normally see connections between, and then does some interesting extrapolation on what that means for us, usually. I first heard of him on a TED Talk, and he's got this really calm, wonderful style that I just love. And he reads all his own audiobooks, so that's an extra plus. He had a book of different short pieces he did called What the Dog Saw. And I would say so far he's got two episodes of revisionist history. And this makes me think of short versions of those. It's really interesting. I really enjoy it. And I really agree with what he said about history needing a second look. When you're close up to something, you don't always understand what it means. So, let's look. You can get it on iTunes, and uh, all you have to do is type in Malcolm Gladwell there. It's going to pop up. Now, back to the bat. (laughs) I enjoyed Miss Cornelia getting creative with how she was going to be a detective, how she was going to prove the doctor's fingerprint was the same as the fingerprint on the banister. It was really too bad that she was wrong (laughs) because I was just ready for her to be right. And I didn't know where we were going after that. So I loved her initiative. I love the fact that she will take the detective on. And although she hired him, she's in an adversarial position with him because she's going to show him she'll do the detecting. I think that's hilarious. There were also, of course, other developments. And when the last episode closed out, Anderson was putting Bailey in handcuffs. He was going to take him in for theft and murder. Yeah, we we know that's not going to (laughs) work. We know that's not happening. He's the romantic interest in Dale's life. So that's one thing we already know about this next episode. The other thing is, there are three chapters. Two of them are very short, and that means it is chock full of action because this book only has 22 chapters. Things are going to get crazy, everyone. So, listen to it in the dark with maybe just a candle lit. 
and no breezes nearby to blow the candle out. Are you ready? Yeah, I know, me too. Let's dive in. The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood Chapter 15 The Sign of the Bat But Dale could bear it no longer. The sight of her lover, beaten, submissive, his head bowed, waiting obediently like a common criminal for the detective to lock his wrists in steel, broke down her last defenses. She rushed into the center of the room, between Bailey and the detective, her eyes wild with terror, her words stumbling over each other and her eagerness to get them out. Oh, no, I can't stand it. I'll tell you everything, she cried frenziedly. He got to the foot of the staircase, Richard Fleming, I mean. She was facing the detective now. And he had the blueprint you've been talking about. I had told him Jack Bailey was here as the gardener, and he said if I screamed, he would tell that. I was desperate. I threatened him with the revolver, but he took it from me. Then, when I tore the blueprint from him, he was shot from the stairs. By Bailey, interjected Beresford angrily. I didn't even know he was in the house. Bailey's answer was as instant as it was hot. Meanwhile, the doctor had entered the room, hardly noticed, in the middle of Dale's confession, and now stood watching the scene intently from a post by the door. "'What did you do with the blueprint?' The detective's voice beat at Dale like a whip. "'I put it first in the neck of my dress,' she faltered. "'Then when I found you were watching me, I hid it somewhere else.' Her eye fell on the doctor. She saw his hand steal out toward the knob of the door. Was he going to run away on some pretext before she could finish her story? She gave a sigh of relief when Billy, re-entering with the key to the front door, blocked any such attempt at escape. Mechanically, she watched Billy cross to the table, lay the key upon it, and return to the hall without so much as a glance at the tense, suspicious circle of faces focused upon herself and her lover. I put it somewhere else, she repeated, her eyes going back to the doctor. Did you give it to Bailey? No, I hid it, and then I told where it was to the doctor. Dale swayed on her feet. All turned surprisedly toward the doctor. Miss Cornelia rose from her chair. The doctor bore the battery of eyes unflinchingly. That's rather inaccurate, he said with a tight little smile. You told me where you had placed it, but when I went to look for it, it was gone. Are you quite sure of that? queried Miss Cornelia acidly. Absolutely, he said. He ignored the rest of the party, addressing himself directly to Anderson. She said that she had hidden it inside one of the rolls that were on the tray on that table, he continued in tones of easy explanation, approaching the table as he did so and tapping it with the box of sleeping powders he had brought for Miss Cornelia. She was in such distress that I finally went to look for it. It wasn't there. Do you realize the significance of this paper? Anderson boomed at once. Nothing beyond the fact that Miss Ogden was afraid it linked her with the crime. The doctor's voice was very clear and firm. Anderson pondered for an instant. Then, 
I'd like to have a few minutes with the doctor alone, he said somberly. The group about him dissolved at once. Miss Cornelia, her arm about her niece's waist, led the latter gently to the door. As the two lovers passed each other, a glance flashed between them, a glance pathetically brief, of longing and love. Dale's fingertips brushed Bailey's hand gently in passing. "'Beresford,' commanded the detective, "'take Bailey to the library and see that he stays there.' Beresford tapped his pocket with a significant gesture and motioned Bailey to the door. Then they, too, left the room. The door closed. The doctor and the detective were alone. The detective spoke at once, and surprisingly. "'Doctor, I'll have that blueprint,' he said sternly, his eyes the color of steel." The doctor gave him a wary little glance. But I've just made the statement that I didn't find the blueprint, he affirmed flatly. I heard you. Anderson's voice was very dry. Now, this situation is between you and me, Dr. Wells. His forefinger sought the doctor's chest. It has nothing to do with that poor fool of a cashier. He hasn't got either those securities or the money from them, and you know it. It's in this house, and you know that, too. "'In this house,' repeated the doctor, as if stalling for time. "'In this house. "'Tonight, when you claimed to be making a professional call, "'you were in this house, "'and I think you were on that staircase when Richard Fleming was killed.' "'No, Anderson, I'll swear I was not.' "'The doctor might be acting, "'but if he was, it was incomparable acting. "'The terror in his voice seemed too real to be feigned. "'But Anderson was remorseless.' I'll tell you this, he continued. Miss Van Gorder very cleverly got a thumbprint of yours tonight. Does that mean anything to you? His eyes bored into the doctor, the eyes of a poker player bluffing on a hidden card. But the doctor did not flinch. Nothing, he said firmly. I have not been upstairs in this house in three months. The accent of truth in his voice seemed so unmistakable that even Anderson's shrewd brain was puzzled by it. But he persisted in his attempt to wring a confession from this latest suspect. Before Courtley Fleming died, did he tell you anything about a hidden room in this house? He queried cannily. The doctor's confident air of honesty lessened. A furtive look appeared in his eyes. No, he insisted but not as convincingly as he had made his previous denial. The detective hammered at the point again. You haven't been trying to frighten these women out of here with anonymous letters so you could get in? No, certainly not. But again, the doctor's air had that odd mixture of truth and falsehood in it. The detective paused for an instant. Let me see your key ring, he ordered. The doctor passed it over silently. The detective glanced at the keys. Then suddenly, his revolver glittered in his other hand. The doctor watched him anxiously. A puff of wind rattled the panes of the French windows. The storm, quieted for a while, was gathering its strength for a fresh unleashing of its dogs of thunder. The detective stepped to the terrace door, opened it, and then quietly proceeded to try the doctor's keys in the lock. Thus located, he was out of visual range, and Wells took advantage of it at once. 
He moved swiftly toward the fireplace, extracting the missing piece of blueprint from an inside pocket as he did so. The secret the blueprint guarded was already graven on his mind in indelible characters. Now he would destroy all evidence that it had ever been in his possession and bluff through the rest of the situation as best he might. He threw the paper toward the flames with a nervous gesture of relief. But for once, his cunning failed. The throw was too hurried to be sure, and the light scrap of paper wavered and settled to the floor just outside the fireplace. The doctor swore noiselessly and stooped to pick it up and make sure of its destruction. But he was not quick enough. Through the window, the detective had seen the incident, and the next moment, the doctor heard his voice bark behind him. He turned and stared at the leveled muzzle of Anderson's revolver. Hands up and stand back, he commanded. As he did so, Anderson picked up the paper, and a sardonic smile crossed his face as his eyes took in the significance of the print. He laid his revolver down on the table where he could snatch it up again at a moment's notice. Behind a fireplace, eh? he muttered. What fireplace? In which room? I won't tell you. The doctor's voice was sullen. He inched gingerly, cautiously toward the other side of the table. All right, I'll find it, you know. The detective's eyes turned swiftly back to the blueprint. Experience should have taught him never to underrate an adversary, even of the doctor's caliber. But long familiarity with danger can make the shrewdest careless. For a moment, as he bent over the paper again, he was off guard. The doctor seized the moment with a savage promptitude and sprang. There followed a silent, furious struggle between the two. Under normal circumstances, Anderson would have been the stronger and quicker, but the doctor fought with an added strength of despair, and his initial leap had pinioned the detective's arms behind him. Now the detective shook one hand free and snatched at the revolver. In vain, for the doctor, with a groan of desperation, struck at his hand as its fingers were about to close on the smooth butt, and the revolver skidded from the table to the floor. With a sudden terrible movement, he pinioned both of the detective's arms behind him again and reached for the telephone. Its heavy base descended on the back of the detective's head with stunning force. The next moment, the battle was ended, and the doctor, panting with exhaustion, held the limp form of an unconscious man in his arms. He lowered the detective to the floor and straightened up again, listening tensely. So brief and intense had been the struggle that even now he could hardly believe in its reality. It seemed impossible, too, that the struggle had not been heard. Then he realized dully, as a louder roll of thunder smote on his ears, that the elements themselves had played into his hand. The storm, with its wind and fury, had returned just in time to save him, and drown out all sounds of conflict from the rest of the house with its giant clamor. He bent swiftly over Anderson, listening to his heart. Good, the man still breathed. He had enough on his conscience without adding the murder of a detective to the black weight. Now he pocketed the revolver and the blueprint, gagged Anderson rapidly with a knotted handkerchief, and proceeded to wrap his own muffler around the detective's head as an additional silencer. Anderson gave a faint sigh. 
the doctor thought rapidly. Sooner or later, the detective would return to consciousness. With his hands free, he could easily tear out the gag. He looked wildly about the room for a rope, a curtain. Ah, he had it, the detective's own handcuffs. He snapped the cuffs on Anderson's wrists, then realized that in his hurry he had bound the detective's hands in front of him instead of behind him. Well, it would do for the moment. He did not need much time to carry out his plans. He dragged the limp body, its head lolling, into the billiard room where he deposited it on the floor in the corner farthest from the door. So far, so good. Now, to lock the door of the billiard room. Fortunately, the key was there on the inside of the door. He quickly transferred it, locked the billiard room door from the outside, and pocketed the key. For a second, he stood by the center table in the living room, recovering his breath and trying to straighten his rumpled clothing. Then he crossed cautiously into the alcove and started to pad up the alcove stairs, his face white and strained with excitement and hope. And it was then that there happened one of the most dramatic events of the night, one which was to remain for the next hour or so, as bewildering as the murder, and which, had it come a few moments sooner or a few moments later, would have entirely changed the course of events. It was preceded by a desperate hammering on the door of the terrace. It halted the doctor on his way upstairs, drew Beresford on a run into the living room, and even reached the bedrooms of the women upstairs. "'My God, what's that?' Beresford panted. The doctor indicated the door. It was too late now. Already he could hear Miss Cornelia's voice above. It was only a question of a short time until Anderson in the billiard room revived and would try to make his plight known. And in the brief moment of that resume of his position— the knocking came again, but feebler, as though the suppliant outside had exhausted his strength. As Beresford drew his revolver and moved to the door, Miss Cornelia came in, followed by Lizzie. "'It's the bat,' Lizzie announced mournfully. "'Good-bye, Miss Nellie. Good-bye, everybody. I saw his hand all covered with blood. He's had a good night for sure.' But they ignored her. And Beresford flung open the door. Just what they expected. What figure of horror or fear they waited for, no one can say. But there was no horror and no fear. Only unutterable amazement as an unknown man in torn and muddied garments, with a streak of dried blood seaming his forehead like a scar, fell through the open doorway into Beresford's arms. Good God! muttered Beresford, dropping his revolver to catch the strange burden. For a moment, the unknown lay in his arms like a corpse. Then he straightened dizzily, staggered into the room, took a few steps towards the table, and fell prostrate on his face at the end of his strength. Doctor! gasped Miss Cornelia dazedly. And the doctor... Whatever guilt lay on his conscience responded at once to the call of his profession. He bent over the unknown man, the physician once more, and made a brief examination. "'He's fainted,' he said, rising. "'Struck on the head, too.' "'But who is he?' faltered Miss Cornelia. "'I never saw him before,' said the doctor. 
It was obvious that he spoke the truth. Does anyone recognize him? All crowded about the unknown, trying to read the riddle of his identity. Miss Cornelia rapidly revised her first impressions of the stranger. When he had first fallen through the door into Beresford's arms, she had not known what to think. Now in the brighter light of the living room, she saw that the still face, beneath its mask of dirt and dried blood, was strong and fairly youthful. If the man were a criminal, he belonged, like the bat, to the upper fringes of the world of crime. She noted mechanically that his hands and feet had been tied, ends of frayed rope still dangled from his wrists and ankles, and that terrible injury on his head. She shuddered and closed her eyes. Does anyone recognize him? repeated the doctor, but one by one the others shook their heads. Crook? Casual tramp or honest laborer unexpectedly caught in the sinister toils of the Cedarcrest affair. His identity seemed a mystery to one and all. Is he badly hurt? asked Miss Cornelia, shuddering again. It's hard to say, answered the doctor. I think not. The unknown stirred feebly, made an effort to sit up. Beresford and the doctor caught him under the arms and helped him to his feet. He stood there, swaying, a blank expression on his face. A chair, said the doctor quickly. Ah, he helped the strange figure to sit down and bent over him again. You're all right now, my friend, he said in his best tones of professional cheeriness. Dizzy a bit, aren't you? The unknown rubbed his wrists where his bonds had cut them. He made an effort to speak. Water, he said in a low voice. The detective gestured to Billy. Get some water or whiskey if there is any. That'd be better. There's a flask of whiskey in my room, Billy, added Miss Cornelia helpfully. Now, my man, continued the doctor to the unknown, you're in the hands of friends. Brace up and tell us what happened. Beresford had been looking about for the detective, puzzled not to find him, as usual, in charge of affairs. Now... "'Where's Anderson? This is a police matter,' he said, making a movement as if to go in search of him. The doctor stopped him quickly. "'He was here a minute ago. He'll be back presently,' he said, praying to whatever gods he served that Anderson, bound and gagged in the billiard room, had not yet returned to consciousness. Unobserved by all except Miss Cornelia, the mention of the detective's name had caused a strange reaction in the unknown.' His eyes had opened. He had started. The haze in his mind had seemed to clear away for a moment. Then, for some reason, his shoulders had slumped again and the look of apathy came back to his face. But, stunned or not, it now seemed possible that he was not quite as dazed as he had appeared. The doctor gave the slumped shoulders a little shake. "'Rouse yourself, man,' he said. "'What has happened to you?' I'm dazed, said the unknown thickly and slowly. I can't remember. He passed a hand weakly over his forehead. What a night, sighed Miss Cornelia, sinking into a chair. Richard Fleming murdered in this house, and now this. The unknown shot her a stealthy glance from beneath lowered eyelids, but when she looked at him, his face was blank again. "'Why doesn't somebody ask his name?' queried Dale. "'And 
Where the devil is that detective? muttered Beresford almost in the same instant. Neither question was answered, and Beresford, increasingly uneasy at the continued absence of Anderson, turned toward the hall. The doctor took Dale's suggestion. What's your name? Silence from the unknown, and that blank stare of stupefaction. Look at his papers. It was Miss Cornelia's voice. The doctor and Bailey searched the torn trouser pockets, the pockets of the muddied shirt, while the unknown submitted passively, not seeming to care what happened to him. But search him as they would. It was in vain. Not a paper on him, said Jack Bailey at last, straightening up. A crash of breaking glass from the head of the alcove stairs put period to his sentence. All turned toward the stairs. Or all except the unknown, who for a moment half rose in his chair, his eyes gleaming, his face alert, the mask of bewildered apathy gone from his face. As they watched, a rigid little figure of horror backed slowly down the alcove stairs and into the room. Billy, the Japanese, his oriental placidity disturbed at last, incomprehensible terror written in every line of his face. Billy, Billy, what is it? The diminutive butler made a pitiful attempt at his usual grin. It, nothing, he gasped. The unknown relapsed in his chair, again the dazed stranger from nowhere. Beresford took the Japanese by the shoulders. Now see here, he said sharply. You've seen something. What was it? Billy trembled like a leaf. Ghost, ghost, he muttered frantically, his face working. He's concealing something. Look at him. Miss Cornelia stared at her servant. No, no, insisted Billy in an ague of fright. No, no. But Miss Cornelia was sure of it. Brooks, close that door she said, pointing at the terrace door in the alcove, which still stood ajar after the entrance of the unknown. Bailey moved to obey, but just as he reached the alcove, the terrace door slammed shut in his face. At the same moment, every light in Cedarcrest blinked and went out again. Bailey fumbled for the doorknob in the sudden darkness. The door's locked, he said incredulously. The key's gone, too. Where's your revolver, Beresford? I dropped it in the alcove when I caught that man, called Beresford, cursing himself for his carelessness. The illuminated dial of Bailey's wristwatch flickered in the darkness as he searched for the revolver, as round, glowing spot of phosphorescence. Lizzie screamed, The eye! The gleaming eye I saw on the stairs! She shrieked, pointing at it frenziedly. Quick, there's a candle on the table. Light it, somebody. Never mind the revolver. I have one, called Miss Cornelia. Right-o, called Beresford cheerily in response. He found the candle, lit it. The party blinked at each other for a moment, still unable quite to coordinate their thoughts. Bailey rattled the knob of the door into the hall. This door's locked, too, he said with increasing puzzlement. A gasp went over the group. They were locked in the room while some devilment was going on in the rest of the house. That they knew. 
but what it might be, what form it might take, they had not the remotest idea. They were too distracted to notice the injured man, now alert in his chair, or the doctor's odd attitude of listening above the rattle and banging of the storm. But it was not until Miss Cornelia took the candle and proceeded into the hall door to examine it that the full horror of the situation burst upon them. Neatly fastened to the white panel of the door, chest high and hardly more than just dead, was the body of a bat. Of what happened thereafter, no one afterward remembered the details. To be shut in there at the mercy of one who knew no mercy was intolerable. It was left for Miss Cornelia to remember her own revolver, lying unnoticed on the table since the crime earlier in the evening, and to suggest its use in shattering the lock. Just what they had expected when the door was finally opened, they did not know. But the house was quiet and in order. No new horror faced them in the hall. Their candle revealed no bloody figure. Their ears heard no unearthly sound. Slowly, they began to breathe normally once more. After that, they began to search the house. Since no room was apparently immune from danger, the men made no protest when the women insisted on accompanying them. And as time went on, and chamber after chamber was discovered empty and undisturbed, gradually the courage of the party began to rise. Lizzie, still whimpering, stuck closely to Miss Cornelia's heels, but that spirited lady began to make small side excursions of her own. Of the men, only Bailey, Beresford, and the doctor could really be said to search at all. Billy had remained below, impassive of face, but rolling of eye. The unknown, after an attempt to depart with them, had sunk back wearily into his chair again, and the detective Anderson was still unaccountably missing. While no one could be said to be grieving over this, still the belief that somehow, somewhere, he had met the bat and suffered at his hands was strong in all of them, except the doctor. As each door was opened, they expected to find him probably foully murdered. As each door was closed again, they breathed with relief. And... As time went on, and the silence and peace remained unbroken, the conviction grew on them that the bat had in this manner achieved his object and departed, had done his work, signed it after his usual fashion, and gone. And thus were matters when Miss Cornelia, happening on the attic staircase with Lizzie at her heels, decided to look about her up there, and went up. Chapter 16. The Hidden Room A few moments later, Jack Bailey, seeing a thin glow of candlelight from the attic above and hearing Lizzie's protesting voice, made his way up there. He found them in the trunk room, a dusty, dingy apartment lined with high closets along the walls, the floor littered with an incongruous assortment of attic objects, two battered trunks, a clothes hamper, an old sewing machine, a broken-backed kitchen chair, two dilapidated suitcases, and a savvy satchel that might once have been a woman's dressing case. 
in one corner a grimy fireplace in which, obviously, no fire had been lighted for years. But he also found Miss Cornelia holding her candle to the floor and staring at something there. "'Candle grease!' she said sharply, staring at a line of white spots by the window. She stooped and touched the spots with an exploratory finger. "'Fresh candle grease!' Now, who do you suppose did that? Do you remember how Mr. Gillette in Sherlock Holmes, when he... Her voice trailed off. She stooped and followed the trail of the candle grease away from the window, ingeniously trying to copy the shrewd, piercing gaze of Mr. Gillette as she remembered him in his most famous role. It leads straight to the fireplace she murmured in tones of Sherlockian gravity. Bailey repressed an involuntary smile, but her next words gave him genuine food for thought. She stared at the mantle of the fireplace accusingly. It's been going through my mind for the last few minutes that no chimney flue runs up this side of the house, she said. Bailey stared. Then why the fireplace? "'That's what I'm going to find out,' said the spinster grimly. She started to wrap the mantle, testing it for secret springs. "'Jack! Jack!' It was Dale's voice, low and cautious, coming from the landing of the stairs. Bailey stepped to the door of the trunk room. "'Come in,' he called in reply, "'and shut the door behind you.' Dale entered, turning the key in the lock behind her, "'Where are the others?' "'They're still searching the house. "'There's no sign of anybody.' "'They haven't found Mr. Anderson?' "'Dale shook her head. "'Not yet.' "'She turned toward her aunt. "'Miss Cornelia had begun to enjoy herself once more. "'Rapping on the mantelpiece, "'poking and pressing various corners "'and sections of the mantle itself, "'she remembered all the detective stories "'she had ever read and thought with a sniff of scorn "'that she could better them. "'There were always sliding panels "'and hidden drawers in detective stories, "'and the detective discovered them "'by rapping just as she was doing "'and listening for a hollow sound in answer. "'She rapped on the wall above the mantel. Exactly. There was the hollow echo she wanted. Hollow as Lizzie's head, she said triumphantly. The fireplace was obviously not what it seemed. There must be a space behind it unaccounted for in the building plans. Now what was the next step detectives always took? Oh, yes. They looked for panels. Panels that moved... And when one shoved them away, there was a button or something. She pushed and pressed, and finally something did move. It was the mantelpiece itself, false, great, and all, which began to swing out into the room, revealing behind a dark, hollow cubbyhole some six feet by six. The hidden room at last. Oh, Jack, be careful! breathed Dale, as her lover took Miss Cornelia's candle and moved toward the dark hiding place. But her eyes had already caught the outlines of a tall iron safe in the gloom, and in spite of her fears, her lips formed a wordless cry of victory. But Jack Bailey said nothing at all. One glance had shown him that the safe was empty.
The tragic collapse of all their hopes was almost more than they could bear. Coming on top of the nerve-wracking events of the night, it left them dazed and directionless. It was, of course, Miss Cornelia who recovered first. Even without the money, she said, the mere presence of this safe here, hidden away, tells the story. The fact that someone else knew and got here first cannot alter that. But she could not cheer them. It was Lizzie who created a diversion, Lizzie who had bolted into the hall at the first motion of the mantelpiece outward, and who now, with equal precipitation, came bolting back. She rushed into the room, slamming the door behind her, and collapsed into a heap of moaning terror at her mistress's feet. At first she was completely inarticulate, but after a time she muttered that she had seen him, and then fell to groaning again. The same thought was in all their minds, that in some corner of the upper floor she had come across the body of Anderson. But when Miss Cornelia finally quieted her and asked this, she shook her head. "'It was the bat I saw,' was her astounding statement. "'He dropped through the skylight out there and ran along the hall. I saw him, I tell you. He went right by me.' "'Nonsense,' said Miss Cornelia briskly. How can you say such a thing? But Bailey pushed forward and took Lizzie by the shoulder. What did he look like? He hadn't any face. He was all black where his face ought to be. Do you mean he wore a mask? Maybe. I don't know. She collapsed again. But when Bailey, followed by Miss Cornelia, made a move toward the door, she broke into frantic wailing. Don't go out there she shrieked. He's there, I tell you. I'm not crazy. If you open that door, he'll shoot. But the door was already open, and no shot came. With the departure of Bailey into Miss Cornelia, and the resulting darkness due to their taking the candle, Lizzie and Dale were left alone. The girl was faint with disappointment and strain. She sat huddled on a trunk, saying nothing, and after a moment or so, Lizzie roused to her condition. "'Not feeling sick, are you?' she asked. "'I feel a little queer.' "'Who wouldn't in the dark here with that monster loose somewhere nearby?' But she stirred herself and got up. "'I'd better get the smelling salts,' she said heavily. God knows I hate to move, but if there's one place safer in this house than another, I've yet to find it. She went out, leaving Dale alone. The trunk room was dark, save that now and then, as the candle appeared and reappeared, the door was faintly outlined. On this outline she kept her eyes fixed by way of comfort, and thus passed the next few moments. She felt weak and dizzy and entirely despairing. Then the outline was not so clear. She had heard nothing, but there was something in the doorway. It stood there, formless, diabolical, and she saw what was happening. It was closing the door. Afterward, she was mercifully not to remember what came next. The figure was perhaps intent on what was going on outside, or her own movements may have been as silent as his own. That she got into the mantel room and even partially closed it behind her is certain, and that her description of what followed is fairly accurate is borne out by the facts as known. The bat was working rapidly. 
she heard his quick, nervous movements. Apparently, he had come back for something and secured it, for now he moved again toward the door. But he was too late. They were returning that way. She heard him mutter something and quickly turned the key in the lock. Then he seemed to run toward the window and for some reason to recoil from it. The next instant she realized he was coming toward the mantel room, that he intended to hide in it. There was no doubt in her mind as to his identity. It was the bat, and in a moment more he would be shut in there with her. She tried to scream, and could not, and the next instant, when the bat leaped into concealment beside her, she was in a dead faint on the floor. Bailey, meanwhile, had crawled out onto the roof and was carefully searching it, but other things were happening also. A disinterested observer could have seen very soon why the bat had abandoned the window as a means of egress. Almost before the mantle swung to behind the arch-criminal, the top of a tall pruning ladder had appeared at the window, and by its quivering showed that someone was climbing up, rung by rung. Unsuspiciously enough, he came on, pausing at the top to flash a light into the room, and then cautiously swinging a leg over the sill. It was the doctor. He gave a low whistle, but there was no reply, save that, had he seen it, the mantle swung out an inch or two. Perhaps he was never so near death as at that moment. But that instant of irresolution on his part saved him, for by coming into the room he had taken himself out of range. Even then he was very close to destruction, for after a brief pause and a second rather puzzled survey of the room, he started toward the mantle itself. Only the rattle of the doorknob stopped him, and a call from outside. "'Dale!' called Bailey's voice from the corridor. "'Dale! Dale! Dale! The room's locked!' cried Miss Cornelia. The doctor hesitated. The call came again. "'Dale! Dale!' And Bailey pounded on the door as if he meant to break it down. The doctor made up his mind. "'Wait a moment!' he called. He stepped to the door and unlocked it. Bailey hurled himself into the room, followed by Miss Cornelia with her candle. Lizzie stood in the doorway timidly, ready to leap for safety at a moment's notice. "'Why did you lock that door?' said Bailey angrily, threatening the doctor. "'But I didn't,' said the latter, truthfully enough. Bailey made a movement of irritation. Then a glance about the room informed him of the amazing, the incredible fact. Dale was not there.' She had disappeared. You, you, he stammered at the doctor. Where's Miss Ogden? What have you done with her? The doctor was equally baffled. Done with her, he said indignantly. I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't seen her. Then you didn't lock that door, Bailey menaced him. The doctor's denial was firm. Absolutely not. I was coming through the window when I heard your voice at the door. Bailey's eyes leaped to the window. Yes, a ladder was there. The doctor might be speaking the truth after all. But if so, how and why had Bailey disappeared? The doctor's admission of his manner of entrance did not make Lizzie any the happier. In the window, just like a bat, she muttered in shaking tones. She would not have stayed in the doorway if she had not been afraid to move anywhere else.
I saw lights appear from outside, continued the doctor easily, and I thought... Miss Cornelia interrupted him. She had set down her candle and laid the revolver on top of the clothes hamper and now stood gazing at the mantel fireplace. The mantel's closed, she said. The doctor stared. So the secret of the hidden room was a secret no longer. He saw ruin gaping before him, a bottomless abyss. Damnation, he cursed impotently under his breath. Bailey turned on him savagely. Did you shut that mantle? No. I'll see whether you shut it or not. Bailey leaped toward the fireplace. Dale! Dale! he called desperately, leaning against the mantle. His fingers groped for the knob that worked the mechanism of the hidden entrance. The doctor picked up the single lighted candle from the hamper as if to throw more light on Bailey's task. Bailey's fingers found the knob. He turned it. The mantle began to swing out into the room. As it did so, the doctor deliberately snuffed out the light of the candle he held, leaving the room in abrupt and obliterating darkness. Chapter 17 Anderson Makes an Arrest Doctor, why did you put out that candle? Miss Cornelia's voice cut the blackness like a knife. I didn't. I... You did. I saw you do it. The brief exchange of accusation and denial took but an instant of time as the mantle swung wide open. The next instant, there was a rush of feet across the floor from the fireplace, the shock of a collision between two bodies, the sound of a heavy fall. What was that? queried Bailey dazedly, with a feeling as if some great winged creature had brushed at him and passed. Lizzie answered from the doorway. Oh, oh, she groaned in stricken accents. Somebody knocked me down and tramped on me. Matches, quick, commanded Miss Cornelia. Where's the candle? The doctor was still trying to explain his curious action of a moment before. Awfully sorry, I assure you, it dropped out of the holder. Ah, here it is. He held it up triumphantly. Bailey struck a match and lighted it. The wavering little flame showed Lizzie prostrate but vocal in the doorway, and Dale lying on the floor of the hidden room, her eyes shut, and her face as drained of color as the face of a marble statue. For one horrible instant, Bailey thought she must be dead. He rushed to her wildly and picked her up in his arms. No, still breathing, thank God. He carried her tenderly to the only chair in the room. Doctor! The doctor, once more the physician, knelt at her side and felt for her pulse. And Lizzie, picking herself up from where the collision with some violent body had thrown her, retrieved the smelling salts from the floor. It was on to this picture, the candlelight shining on strained faces, the dramatic figure of Dale, now semi-conscious, the desperate rage of Bailey, that a new actor appeared on the scene. Anderson the detective stood in the doorway holding a candle, as grim and menacing a figure as a man just arisen from the dead. "'That's right,' said Lizzie, unappalled for once." Come in when everything's over. 
The doctor glanced up and met the detective's eyes, cold and menacing. You took my revolver from me downstairs, he said. I'll trouble you for it. The doctor got heavily to his feet. The others, their suspicions confirmed at last, looked at him with startled eyes. The detective seemed to enjoy the universal confusion his words had brought. Slowly, with sullen reluctance, the doctor yielded up the stolen weapon. The detective examined it casually and replaced it in his hip pocket. I have something to settle with you pretty soon, he said through clenched teeth addressing the doctor, and I'll settle it properly. Now what's this? He indicated Dale, her face still and waxen, her breath coming so faintly she seemed hardly to breathe at all, as Miss Cornelia and Bailey tried to revive her. She's coming, too, said Miss Cornelia triumphantly, as a first faint flush of color reappeared in the girl's cheeks. We found her in there, Mr. Anderson, the spinster added, pointing toward the gaping entrance of the hidden room. A gleam crossed the detective's face. He went up to examine the secret chamber. As he did so, Dr. Wells, who had been inching surreptitiously toward the door, sought the opportunity of slipping out unobserved. But Anderson was not to be caught napping again. Wells, he barked. The doctor stopped and turned. Where were you when she was locked in this room? The doctor's eyes sought the floor, the walls, wildly, for any possible loophole of escape. I didn't shut her in, if that's what you mean, he said defiantly. There was someone shut in there with her. He gestured at the hidden room. Ask these people here. Miss Cornelia caught him up at once. The fact remains, doctor, she said, her voice cold with anger, that we left her here alone. When we came back, you were here. The corridor door was locked, and she was in that room unconscious. She moved forward to throw the light of her candle on the hidden room. As the detective passed into it, gave it a swift professional glance, and stepped out again. But she had not finished her story by any means. As we opened that door, she continued to the detective, tapping the false mantle, the doctor deliberately extinguished our only candle. Do you know who was in that room? queried the detective fiercely, wheeling on the doctor. But the latter had evidently made up his mind to cling stubbornly to a policy of complete denial. No, he said sullenly. I didn't put out the candle. It fell, and I didn't lock that door into the hall. I found it locked. A sigh of relief from Bailey now centered everyone's attention on himself and Dale. At last, the girl was recovering from the shock of her terrible experience and regaining consciousness. Her eyelids fluttered, closed again, opened once more. She tried to sit up, weakly clinging to Bailey's shoulder. The color returned to her cheeks. The stupor left her eyes. She gave the hidden room a hunted little glance and then shuddered violently. Please close that awful door, she said in a tremulous voice. I don't want to see it again. The detective went silently to close the iron doors. "'What happened to you? Can't you remember?' faltered Bailey on his knees at her side. 
The shadow of an old terror lay on the girl's face. I was in here alone in the dark, she began slowly. Then, as I looked at the doorway there, I saw there was somebody there. He came in and closed the door. I didn't know what to do, so I slipped in there. And after a while, I knew he was coming in too, for he couldn't get out. Then I must have fainted. There was nothing about the figure that you recognized? No, nothing. But we know it was the bat, put in Miss Cornelia. The detective laughed sardonically. The old duel of opposing theories between the two seemed about to recommence. Still harping on the bat, he said with a little sneer. Miss Cornelia stuck to her guns. I have every reason to believe that the bat is in this house, she said. The detective gave another jarring, mirthless laugh. And that he took the Union Bank money out of the safe, I suppose, he jeered. No, Miss Van Gorder, he wheeled on the doctor now. Ask the doctor who took the Union Bank money out of that safe, he thundered. Ask the doctor who attacked me downstairs in the living room, knocked me senseless, and locked me in the billiard room. There was an astonished silence. The detective added a parting shot to his indictment of the doctor. The next time you put handcuffs on a man... Be sure to take the key out of his vest pocket, he said, biting off the words. Rage and consternation mingled on the doctor's countenance. On the faces of the others, astonishment was followed by a growing certainty. Only Miss Cornelia clung stubbornly to her original theory. Perhaps I'm an obstinate old woman, she said in tones which obviously showed that if so, she was rather proud of it. But the doctor and all the rest of us were locked in the living room not ten minutes ago. By the bat, I suppose, mocked Anderson. By the bat, insisted Miss Cornelia inflexibly. Who else would have fastened a dead bat to the door downstairs? Who else would have the bravado to do that? Or what you call the imagination? In spite of himself, Anderson seemed to be impressed. The bat, eh? he muttered. Then, changing his tone, You knew about this hidden room, Wells, he shot at the doctor. Yes, the doctor bowed his head. And you knew the money was in the room. Well, I was wrong, wasn't I? parried the doctor. You can look for yourself. That safe is empty. The detective brushed his evasive answer aside. You were up in this room earlier tonight he said in tones of apparent certainty. No, I couldn't get up, the doctor still insisted with strange violence for a man who had already admitted such damning knowledge. The detective's face was a study in disbelief. You know where that money is, Wells, and I'm going to find it. This last taunt seemed to goad the doctor beyond endurance. Good God! he shouted recklessly. Do you suppose if I knew where it is, I'd be here? I've had plenty of chances to get away. No, you can't pin anything on me, Anderson. It isn't criminal to have known that room is here. He paused, trembling with anger, and curiously enough, with an anger that seemed at least half sincere. Eh, don't be so damned virtuous, said the detective brutally. Maybe you haven't been upstairs. 
but unless I miss my guess, you know who was. The doctor's face changed a little. What about Richard Fleming? persisted the detective scornfully. The doctor drew himself up. I never killed him, he said so impressively that even Bailey's faith in his guilt was shaken. I don't even own a revolver. The detective alone maintained his attitude unchanged. You come with me, Wells, he ordered with a jerk of his thumb toward the door. This time, I'll do the locking up. The doctor, head bowed, prepared to obey. The detective took up a candle to light their path. Then he turned to the others for a moment. Better get the young lady to bed, he said with a gruff kindliness of manner. I think that I can promise you a quiet night from now on. I'm glad you think so, Mr. Anderson, Miss Cornelia insisted on the last word. The detective ignored the satiric twist of her speech, motioned the doctor out ahead of him, and followed. The faint glow of his candle flickered a moment and vanished toward the stairs. It was Bailey who broke the silence. I can believe a good bit about Wells, he said, but not that he stood on that staircase and killed Dick Fleming. Miss Cornelia roused from deep thought. Of course not, she said briskly. Go down and fix Miss Dale's bed, Lizzie, and then bring up some wine. Down there where the bat is, Lizzie demanded. The bat has gone. Don't you believe it? He's just got his hand in. But at last Lizzie went, and closing the door behind her, Miss Cornelia proceeded more or less to think out loud. Suppose, she said, that the bat or whoever it was shut in there with you killed Richard Fleming. Say that he is the one Lizzie saw coming in by the terrace door. Then he knew where the money was, for he went directly up the stairs. But that is two hours ago or more. Why didn't he get the money if it was here and get away? He may have had trouble with the combination. Perhaps. Anyhow, he was on the small staircase when Dick Fleming started up, and of course he shot him, that's clear enough. Then he finally got the safe open after locking us in below, and my coming up interrupted him. How on earth did he get out on the roof? Bailey glanced out the window. It would be possible from here. Possible, but not easy. But if he could do that, she persisted, he could have got away, too. There are trellises and porches. Instead of that, he came back here to this room. She stared at the window. Could a man have done that with one hand? Never in the world. Saying nothing but deeply thoughtful, Miss Cornelia made fresh progress around the room. I know very little about bank currency, she said finally. Could such a sum as was looted from the Union Bank be carried away in a man's pocket? Bailey considered the question. Even in bills of large denomination, it would make a pretty sizable bundle, he said. But that Miss Cornelia's deductions were correct, whatever they were, was in question when Lizzie returned with the elderberry wine. Apparently, Miss Cornelia was to be like the man who repaired the clock. She still had certain things left over. For Lizzie announced that the unknown was ranging the second-floor hall. 
From the time they had escaped from the living room, this man had not been seen or thought of, but that he was a part of the mystery there could be no doubt. It flashed over Miss Cornelia that although he could not possibly have locked them in, in the darkness that followed he could easily have fastened the bat to the door. For the first time it occurred to her that the arch-criminal might not be working alone, and that the entrance of the unknown might have been a carefully devised ruse to draw them all together and hold them there. Nor was Beresford's arrival with the statement that the unknown was moving through the house below particularly comforting. "'He may be dazed, or he may not,' he said. "'Personally, this is not a time to trust anybody.' Beresford knew nothing of what had just occurred, and now seeing Bailey, he favored him with an ugly glance. "'In the absence of Anderson, Bailey,' he added, "'I don't propose to trust you too far. I'm making it my business from now on to see that you don't try to get away. Got that?' But Bailey heard him without particular resentment. "'All right,' he said. "'But I'll tell you this. Anderson is here and has arrested the doctor.' Keep your eye on me if you think it's your duty, but don't talk to me as if I were a criminal. You don't know that yet. The doctor! Beresford gasped. But Miss Cornelia's keen ears had heard a sound outside, and her eyes were focused on the door. That doorknob is moving, she said in a hushed voice. Beresford moved to the door and jerked it violently open. The butler, Billy almost pitched into the room.